Would you strip for art? What a ridiculous question. You know the answer. Of course I wouldn't. I was a bit surprised that Gillan McLaughlin, the head of the AFL, and various AFL people remained so quiet on this topic. He's trying to be a populist, and his advice from his media team is always to back away from these things and not get involved. Caroline, I have one thing to say to you. (laughs) Empty shops. Actually, that's two words. He's just a big, emotionally disturbed, badly brought up kid with enormous tennis talent. This is an extraordinary story. It's got everything. It's got sex and politics and cover-ups and attempted murders. Do you sift the pips out of the passion fruit? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I love them being nice and crunchy. Don't you love a crunch of a passion fruit pip? But I did love stumbling in. Remember when... Oh, no, that was just awkward. She tried to go down the country in Western Park. (laughs) Stick to your knitting, Susie. I can't believe she's still going. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corrie Perkin and let's get this busy episode underway. Hello, Scrabble buddy, Caro Wilson. Well, not really. You piffed me for Scrabble this week. I offered you a fire. I didn't mention champagne, but it was there if you wanted it. I wanted to hold on to that dollar one more week. (laughs) So I read the papers instead and watched on iView, um, episode, oh, it was so sad, episode four of Poldark. Now, Corrie, I've got some housekeeping before you do your housekeeping. Is it worse to kill someone off who's alive or say they're alive when they're dead? Because we need to apologise to Don Lane, even though he's dead, because we said he was still alive last week after Bert Newton's unfortunate comments about him at the Logies. Sorry, Don. Very, very sorry. Sorry, Don's family. Well, we, we forgot we forgot that you died. It's you know, it's, I it is a, feel, a bit. I, I did have a feeling. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to work no, my I, way out of this, but I had a feeling that he'd popped off to that big studio in the sky. I didn't say it with a huge amount of confidence either. And look, I had an um, not an altercation, not an assignation. I was sitting next to someone the I hope other it day. It wasn't an assignation. No, I you was married. Sitting, Oh, no, um, it can be a meeting, Corrie. It doesn't have to be clandestine. I was sitting in the makeup chair at Channel 9 before Footy Classified the other day and this big, rather sort of genial man came in and sat next to me and there was a producer. And that often happens. The producer brings someone in and, you know, they're going on a current affair or some show. And I knew he looked familiar. And as he walked out, he smiled at me and I smiled at him. It was Todd Marshall. You know, the guy who was stuck down the Beaconsfield mine and he was obviously going on a current affair to talk about the cave situation. And I was I was so engrossed in what I was, you know, going to be talking about that night. I think I was writing The Arrow or something. I would have loved to have had a chat but to Todd Marshall. you probably also thought that you knew him. It's like when my mother got into the lift at the Watergate Hotel in Washington with my dad one time and started chatting very in a very friendly way to the man and his wife who were in the lift who were very polite, going, oh, yes, yes, and... As mum was talking to them, thinking, I've met this man on some conference or I've met him before in, an, in another hotel, another place. It was Jimmy Stewart, the actor. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a wonderful life. Well, anyway, I would have loved to have chatted to Todd Marshall. Um, we'll Cara, we've got lots later. to get through today. We do. We've got lots of Australian sportsmen behaving badly. Uh, please note that I say Australian sportsmen. And we'll also briefly revisit last week's controversy surrounding the Barry Hall and his inappropriate on-air comments about... Well, it's it's had more... As we said, we didn't think it was going to end and it still hasn't ended. That's right. The fallout and continues. And you have a Netflix clarification. Um, yeah, I do, Caro. Um, yes, I do. Uh, unusual for my husband, Peter. He listened to the podcast and he said, Chuck Rhodes, you twit 
was not be, is not trying to become mayor of New York. He's actually be trying trying to become governor of the state, which is a much bigger, much more important uh, role. So look, oh, really, for pedants. And also someone else pointed Political out to me. clarification. I, I said, uh, I, I must have said Frankie Goes to Hollywood was a band, uh, was a song and not a band. Because I was, when we were talking about Huey Lewis. No, you mixed up Huey Lewis duets. with, with, <laughs> but with it Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Frankie Goes to Hollywood was they a sang, band. Well, no, they were a band, but I said it was they a song. Relax. I said, I said didn't, didn't Huey Lewis sing Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which is just ridiculous because, of course, it's a band. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Oh, I thought you were just mixing it up. Oh, you were, No, I was really, I was just oh, really Very out. off your game, guys. Yeah, I was. <laughs> but Huey Lewis, of course, sat, you know, the power of love and hip to be square. He was not part of the band Frankie Goes to Hollywood, so that's it. Uh, just before we get on to um, uh, some, we've had lots of correspondence following our uh, podcast last week, Carol, where we picked up on a number of issues, including Barry Hall. I'd just like to shout out to our friends at the Outer Sanctum podcast um, they did a fabulous coverage of this, Carol. I don't know whether you listened to it, but the team had, uh, well, I thought they just got to the nub of the issue and they had two of the finest commentators on this particular topic of sexism in sport. Dr. Tiara Ernst, who apart from being an Aussie rules footballer who plays for the Western Bulldogs, she's also a doctor training in obstetrics and gynecology so she could fill listeners in a bit further on that comment and what it would mean to the medical profession. Well, you and you made a similar point, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did indeed. I'm not the doctor in training. And then the other guest she had who was so interesting, Professor Sarah Joseph, who's a human rights lawyer and she's director of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law. She was fascinating too on this particular topic. You can pick up that, that um, episode of Outer Sanctum. Good on you girls. That was great. Cara, the discussion continues. It continued last week and it continues into this week regarding Barry Hall's sacking from Triple M's radio team after he made those inappropriate comments about Lee Montagna's wife, who at the time was pregnant, Erin Byrne. They've since had a baby. Congratulations. But um, Barry made awful comments about an obstetrics procedure relating to her pregnancy. Why do you think this issue has resonated so powerfully in our community? And it wasn't just the typical dialer feminist jumping up and down. I think because it was multi-layered, Corrie. I mean, obviously, Barry Hall has priors on and off the field. Um, as recently as last year, he belted someone again in a in a lower league game. His career effectively ended at the Sydney Swans after that shocking hit on behind the play on Brent Staker. And then I think he... Well, well he made a terrible comment on RSN a few years ago about a man having sex with a horse that's been taken off the RSN website. But interestingly, it's the response and the, his colleague on RSN laughed at the time and it was the laughter that followed the comment, the analysis that followed the entire situation. Because I think Triple M thought, we've sacked Barry Hall, we've done the right thing, everyone should be praising us. We'll know who agreed to the topic in the first place, who allowed someone like Barry Hall to come in untrained, unadvised. And I'm told Barry Hall is feeling very on the outer now and feeling like he's been, I mean, it's ridiculous to say he's been made a scapegoat because he made, who would think of such a disgusting comment? He was he leading to it. He and his wife, Lauren Hall, are in Queensland at the moment on a holiday um, and Lauren Hall went public as soon, as soon as her husband was sacked just saying, look, he's a terrific bloke and all of that kind of thing, which, you know, is, is within her rights to go onto social and media. And for and nice paparazzi shots with the child and all that sort of stuff. He's feeling one out and feeling as though he was not, he's never had any training at all. And that's a problem when 
former players go into these dangerous radio situations. I think people were shocked at the production team's failure to deal with it quickly. They were shocked at the fact that the topic was introduced in the first place. Mark Howard, the host, who of course was heard laughing in the background when Chris Gale made the don't blush baby comment a couple of summers ago, has priors. Uh, I mean, he's he didn't do any of this and he would not have wanted that comment to be made and would was clearly ill-equipped to deal with it. But there was his reaction, Nathan Brown's laughter, Lee Montagna, of course, and how that must have been for them having had a baby in such awful circumstances, even Just though it's shocking. a joyous event. But also, you know, Tabcor have acted and axed him from their coverage. And yet, interestingly, Triple M have not. No. And so, and, and then, then, of course, our brother podcast, The Sounding Board, made some extraordinary claims. Damien Barrett, who was, you know, one who didn't laugh and who clearly... Well, I don't know if he didn't do enough, but he certainly was the one who tried to do more than anyone else to fix this. I don't know why he went out on a limb and tried to defend the laughter. He used about four or five different adjectives about the laughter. But in the end, Damien, it was raucous laughter. There's nothing more you can say about it. Whether it was nervous or shock or whatever, it was there. So I don't think he covered himself in glory on that podcast. I think he'd have his time again there. And even Craig Hutchison, who I actually... Arrowed on Footy Classified on Monday night for saying this is a wake-up call for all of us, for everyone in the industry. A lot of people I work with were a bit offended by that because we were all going, well, no. <laughs> well, I'm offended because Don't I was... Don't lump me I, in with that. I started writing footy in 1981 and we've been talking about this. I, my end of season, my f- first season, I was asked by Neil Mitchell, the then sports editor, to write a piece about sexism in footy and comments that I had incurred during my, you know, time at training down at Arden Street and covering games and being kicked out of rooms like your dad did when he was Richmond president saying I couldn't go in. Uh, you know, this has been going on forever, so it wasn't really a wake-up call for the industry, just Triple M, I suspect. But Triple M has sent an internal memo to their staff reassuring them that they're having a good hard look at this and standards um, will uh, will be improved. Um, I was a bit surprised that Gillan McLaughlin, uh, the head of the AFL and various AFL people, remained so quiet on this topic. I know Gillan said on the Monday, I think it was, that he was a bit horrified by these comments, but they haven't taken it any further. Is that because Triple M is a partner with the AFL in coverage of the game? Well, they are a media partner in that they buy the media rights, but they're not like Channel 7. And, um, I mean, Gillan McLaughlin got involved in the... um, big freeze drowning issue because Eddie Maguire and James Brayshaw were football club presidents. Yes, and Eddie, exactly. And in this case, there were no AFL officials involved. But Gillan McLaughlin would, um, you know, well, he's in Italy now. Good luck to him. But he doesn't like um, getting involved in these things because he worries about um, – he, he's a – He's trying to be a populist and his advice from his media team is always to back away from these things and not get involved. I I couldn't get him to comment on Ben Cousins when he was going through his terrible trauma. He's a bit frightened of all of that. So I think he would see that some people wouldn't like him getting involved. Carol, we had a lot of response at Don't Shoot the Messenger from our potties out there. Thanks everybody who commented on Facebook and various social media applications. We really appreciated your feedbacks. A couple of them were uh, most interesting. Nicole Sutherland said, Carol and Corey just listening to episode 44 and I agree with your comments on the boys club. I stopped listening to Triple M footy a long time ago for that very reason. 
too many in-jokes and too much nasal navel-gazing. The footy show is the same, and I haven't bothered it with it for years. Keep up the great work. And Tommy Oldfield85 on our Carol and Corey Instagram said, I thought this was a great podcast, best analysis of this topic yet. I was concerned that the midweek Triple M rub had similar issues in regards to culture of disrespect towards women, also which appears to have been missed at uh at the 23.45 minute mark on the 27th of June. Now, I haven't heard that, but that's sort of quite interesting. Um, Carol, have you had much feedback? Oh, well, I sort of, to be honest, Corrie, yeah, we're, I mean, uh, wonderful Miss Jane, the producer, has sent us a lot of feedback. And I think that this is an issue that has galvanised a lot of, um, you know, forward thinking, smart thinking. You know, um, men and what, women. What's the word? Clear thinking men and women in, in in both in and outside the industry. And you know, as as with the political situation last week, which is um, why don't you stop shagging men and that whole issue? I think it was the response and the media response, and of course the poor girl on Sky, the poor young woman on Sky News who got into trouble. I think it's the response that is just as interesting as the act itself. And that's what's been so disappointing, that too many of them have gone into self-preservation and not just put their hand up. Sportsmen behaving badly, number one, Caro. The Basketball Federations of Australia and the Philippines have issued a joint apology after that extraordinary basketball brawl as they're calling it. Did you see it in the Philippines? Yeah, I did. Where the Aussies were attacked? And and we actually, it, interestingly, again, the response was fascinating because the the team calling the game, we, we interviewed Shane Hill, the former, both the former boomer and international basketballer on sports day with Jared Hilly and Dwayne Russell last week. And he was, you know, horrified and talked about, you know, where it began and who did the right thing and who did the wrong thing. Um, obviously, Kicker is the Australian who's going to get into a huge amount of trouble and has been one of the um, players accused of the racist taunts. I mean, apparently the, the Philippines are claiming that the Australians were calling them monkeys, among other well, it, things. Well, it was, it was actually a journalist who overheard it. They have, none of the players have substantiated that yet, but a, a Philippine journalist yes. heard one of the Australians say this. So they're now doing an investigation into whether it was actually said. Which they should be. But Shane Hill, when he was actually calling the game... At the beginning, you know, cracked a sort of slightly off-the-cuff gag about when it started. He didn't realise quite how serious it was. And then I realised that the the team calling the game were calling it from a studio in Sydney. Oh, I see. They hadn't gone. I don't think they, they were actually in the Philippines. So, you know, that in itself. Those, trying to pretend that they're there. Is well, those sort of stories are a bit of a worry because you can get yourself into trouble there. It was an utter disgrace. I think there should be police charges certainly um, directed at some of the Philippine players. It was absolutely appalling. The, the gangster selfies at the end of the game were ho- were just horrifying in terms of the attitude, but some of the punches and some of the assaults were terrifying. Why they allowed the game to go on is completely beyond me, and I don't think the Philippines should be allowed to compete in this competition again. I well, think they, that's it they, for them. They do need to, they do need to um, have an investigation, and you're right, the World Cup Asian qualifiers have kind of came to a dead halt when 13 13- were ejected. Is sledging ever a good and positive thing? I, I think it's had its day. I mean, mm. I think there's funny sledging and we all like a funny sledge and you hear stories, you know, years down the track, like what the West Coast guys said to Chris Judd about his shoulder, go for his shoulder and, you know, Chris Judd came back and said, that's because I've been carrying, I carried you blokes for all those years. No wonder <laughs> I've got a damaged shoulder. You know, there are, and there are some funny ones. But stuff to do with 
you know, and, and there was an incident last year with Jake Carlisle having a crack at Mark Murphy about his wife that was just completely disgraceful. That was another case in which the AFL failed to act. So, no, I, I think sledging's had its day, and we talked about this during the South African Test Series and how horrible that was and how horribly they attacked David Warner's wife, you know, on the field and even the even the spectators with banners and stuff. So, no, I'm not Can a Can I just ask you about, cra- about crowd comment, crowd sledging? What's your feeling when somebody's in the outer yelling at uh, the umpire, oh, make a decision, you big girl? I'm not mad on it, but there are worse things I hear than that. I mean, I mean, I, I hate, I actually hate them being It was bald. kind of okay 20 years ago and now suddenly it's terribly yeah, no, not okay. It, 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 it's so ridiculous. It's laughable. And there's less and less of that. I don't even like white maggot. I don't like sitting with people in the crowd swearing, using the F word all the time, abusing players or abusing an umpire's decisions, particularly when I'm sitting with, you know, my mum or my daughter. Just, I, I really can't stand it. So no, ugly Australians, not good. There'll be fallout from that game and it will continue. And, and certainly, um... I'm, well, kick it should get six to eight, maybe even a three-month suspension. I'm not sure what's going to happen there. And thank heavens for a few sensible blokes like Della Vadova, who actually tried to stop others from the bench running in and doing something completely stupid. But Nick Curious, oh, my Lord, he is just... He, he has ruined tennis for well, me. Well, I did want to ask you about it while we're on the topic of Aussie sportsmen behaving badly. I know he's a real favourite of yours. <laughs> has he ruined Wimbledon for you? Completely. Well, I mean, he's gone now, thank heaven, so I can start enjoying it again. But it's the first time I have actively barracked against an Australian watching Wimbledon. So I didn't watch the game. Can you tell me as it unfolded? I'm actually talking about an earlier couple of games. The worst, the worst was in the, I think it was the first round, when he started having a crack at his family up in the stands for not getting, when he was, you know, coming home with a wet sail in the last set, in the I think he, I think it was a three set straight sets victory, started having a crack at his father and his brother for not standing up and cheering him. You know, what's wrong with you blokes? Can't you stand up? Support me, support me. And like trained monkeys, they all stand up and start yelling and cheering him. He had the social media argy bargy with Marion Bartoli, who's now a commentator who made some really pertinent points about his uh, match fitness, his attitude, uh, why he would never be a number one player. And instead of focusing on his game the next day, he took to the tweet and social media and started lambasting her, which um, is not only immature, but the night before a game, really. Look, he's just a a big, emotionally disturbed, badly brought up kid with um, enormous tennis talent, but they can't get him into the gym you know, Australian tennis. They can't get him to focus on his game. They can't get him to really have the hunger that he should have. And it's just, you know, unfortunate that he comes hot on the heels of Bernard Tomic, who Neil Fraser said to me at a dinner about six years ago, you you mightn't like him now, but you'll like him in a few years. Well, no, Neil, unfortunately, I like him even less. I mean, he's they've both been such massive disappointments and they're such bad sports. I mean, what I can't I loathe about Curios too is the way he treats ball boys. And when the umpire took him on, when he had a crack at the umpire about calling a foot fault, and the umpire actually came down from his chair and went over and explained to him what a foot fault was, the cheering of the crowd just showed how utterly jack of Curios the entire Wimbledon supporter base was. Well, I think we should cut him loose as a nation. But, I, but <laughs> we're not going to deport him. But, but it's hard well, no, to... But how much funding must have gone into that kid over the years? Oh, it's just yeah, it's unbelievable. And, and juxtaposed with the retirement last week of Cyril Rioli. Oh, Caro. Well, I'm so glad you got onto that topic because if we're talking about sportsmen who have dignity, grace, 
amazing talent and a man of few words. What a, what a talented person he is. So for those who don't know, but you must, of course, know who Cyril Rioli is, he plays for Hawthorne. Corey, he's a, no, no retiring footballer has received he's the a, coverage. He's a, a four-time – well, I'm thinking of our potties overseas. You know, four-times AFL premiership player. He's a, he was a Norm Smith medalist in 2015. He was an AFL Rising Star nominee in his year of debut. He he in two thousand and nine he cooked the kicked the AFL goal of the year. I mean his his awards and rewards are immense, but he is also a very decent human being who has decided after ten years in the in the senior footy maelstrom that he is going back to the Tiwi Islands, back to family and friends and retired gracefully. Well, there's, I think there's a bit more to it than that. I mean, Damien Barrett hinted, excuse me, hinted at it on the footy show last week. Uh, I don't think things ended super well with Jeff Kennett, according to Damien. Um, Jeff Kennett made some comments. Apparently, all that's been reported is an off-the-cuff comment about Cyril Rioli's wife's jeans, which had rips in them at an airport in Tasmania. She didn't like it. I think there might be more to it than that. I think there is some angst that um, they did think that he would probably retire at the end of last year. He played on this year. He's obviously one of the most highly paid players at Hawthorne. I think his contract this year was six hundred and eighty, seven hundred thousand, and he played three games. So I think there is. It's it's ended. It's ended as brilliantly as it could have, and he has received every accolade that he deserves. And he, you're right. He was. I mean, what he did in the 2008 grand final as a teenager was just what a sight to behold. It was just artistry. But I, I think... There's I, a backstory, but it hasn't been talked about, which I think is... Um, no, I, I just think... A Jeff, measure of the man. Jeff Kennett really puts his foot in it sometimes. And I know, I've no doubt there was a situation there. But to think that two of his uncles, Michael Long and Morris Rioli, also won Norm Smith medals. It's just fantastic. And he has a cousin currently playing for the Tigers, Corrie. Yes, and also Willie... back from injury, And Daniel. also Willie Rioli. What a little star Over he was the on West. the weekend. Yeah, well, Daniel was fantastic. And, I mean, it's great for Richmond's premiership chances that um, he's back and firing. So, um, Carol, it, it's really interesting, the Riolis. You know, they're just a, such a, a, a talented family. And we've had them over the years in footy, like the Danahers and so on. Which ones kind of come to your mind as, as – and why? what breeds a great football family? It can't just be innate talent. Oh, well, oh, well I've, some – well, I mean, the the um, Ablets are the most incredible when you look at Gary Senior, Gary Junior. Of course, Jeff, <coughs> Jeff Ablett, Gary's brother, also played for Hawthorne. Michael Tuck's wife, Faye, you know, is a is an Ablett. There are there are some families, the Kennedy family. I mean, at the moment, Joey Kennedy is about the best thing the Sydney Swans have got going for them. And his father was a Hawthorne Premiership great and his grandfather is the legendary coach and the man who coached Hawthorne to that flag back in 1961. It's just one of those lovely things about footy, and thank heavens, although they've tried to destroy it and micromanage it and minimise it, the father-son rule is still going. I don't, I mean, why why are families, you know, why are there great families of doctors? Why are there great families of artists? You know, the Nolans, it's just one of those incredible in things. In your DNA. Um, Carol, you were, uh, you've been quite vocal on our show and uh, with full support, I might say, from me uh, in, your, uh, in your fight for Tasmanian football. And there were some interesting announcements in the last few days. Well, it was political grandstanding, really, by Bill Shorten, who pledged $25 million towards helping Tasmania 
establish their own football team and also another million dollars to grassroots footy in Tasmania. Look, the AFL aren't putting nearly enough money in. The money is light, even though they're trying to restructure Tasmanian footy. It's still not enough. Um, Bill Shorten had very little to back up his comment that they would put money towards a team. He didn't say how that would happen. He said it's up to the AFL to make the decision. So it's more getting a bit of publicity. It's more of a free hit for Bill Shorten. But isn't that a good thing? Look, it's good that people... Who, who cares the motivation, Carol? It's good that people are talking about it. Even Malcolm Turnbull, who wouldn't know a you know football from a tennis ball, certainly not an Australian rules football. He thinks Tasmania should have their own team. But it's just interesting the debates going on at the moment as the Gold Coast look threatened to lose not one new, one other captain, having already lost Gary Ablett, but they're two co-captains this year. So while that side is capitulating and all fire is on the AFL for their poor, I suppose, poor strategy in setting up that club, you've got the Gold Coast failing up in the north and Tasmania and all the wonderful players and heritage it has looking like it's been decimated down south. So it's a, you know... One of the big issues is lack of grounds and a lot of the great ovals in Tasmania are no longer played on. And these are beautiful ovals with historic houses around it by coastlines, you know, inland. And really interesting, I thought, was the announcement earlier this week that the AFL have finally done a deal with the Sydney Racing Club, the AJC, I think it is, to put a footy oval in the middle of Randwick. Because there are not, not enough ovals in New South Wales either. And all these kids apparently are wanting to play now because of Buddy. So bang, bang for your buck so you can go and watch the under-12s and then turn around and watch Winks win the... <laughs> Probably not at the same time. But the Swans are very happy about that. Complete segue, but I just thought it was a fascinating story. Now, Corrie, very quickly, it's time for book, screen and food. But I just want to say... Look What's a- very quickly? Book, screen and food or what you're about to say? What's what I'm about to say, look okay. around you, Corrie. When I was driving here this morning, it's school holidays here in Melbourne. You know how the, there's been a Chapel Street Festival and all those people got naked the other day in the freezing cold? Mm. Well, there's actually an arts festival going on in Chapel Street. There's a David Bromley has painted all these cars. Mm. And in that little street that where we sometimes get our coffee on our walks, um, Pound, the whole street's been closed off and there are seven David Bromley hand-painted cars filling the street. Yes, and people taking their clothes off further up toward Windsor. It's all happening. And keep driving past the town and there's a Circus Oz tent there. But Caroline, I have one thing to say to you. (laughs) Empty shops. Actually, that's two words. Empty shops. What's happening in retail? Uh, Just have a look at Chapel Street. That is a case in point. About four or five months ago, I went for a walk with the dog up one side of Chapel Street, down the other. And I started counting because I'd already passed about 10 empty shops. I started counting. I got up to 17 and I, I gave up. And that was just in the one stretch between Commercial Road and Turek Road. What's going on? Anyway, if the Arts Festival helps, that's good. Hopefully they're all away. Now, I'm very excited about your book. Yes, you should be, Caro. So this is a, this is a book called A Very English Scandal. It's a non-fiction book and it was published first in 2016. The author is a London journalist called John Preston. And John Preston decided to write about the uh, Jeremy Thorpe saga of uh, the 1960s and 1970s. And this is an extraordinary story. It's got everything. It's got sex and politics and um, cover-ups and attempted murders. So the charismatic Jeremy Thorpe was a member of British Parliament during the late 50s and early 60s. And in fact, he was leader of the Liberal Party from 67 to 1976. And 
He was involved in one of those great London sex scandals of the 20th century, Caro, as if we haven't had enough of those over the years. But um, in 1960, uh, he, he he of course, did not acknowledge to anybody that he was gay. But Jeremy Thorpe in 1960 started a sexual relationship with a young model and a stable hand. He worked in the local stable, so he must have looked pretty gorgeous in a jodhpur. Um, a chap called Norman Joseph, who later changed his name to Norman Scott. And, of course, in 1960, gay sexual relationships were illegal in the UK. And so, of course, from the get-go, Thorpe was determined to keep this matter a secret. But as you always say, Caroline Wilson, the cover-up is often worse than the crime itself. And so in this, true. And in this case, when Thorpe tried to end the affair with the rather clingy, financially motivated, deeply hurt and offended Norman Scott, things became messy. So there was a spate of embarrassing letters and then threats and Scott refused to be paid off and go quietly. And Thorpe, of course, whose star was on the ascent, was becoming more desperate. So in, 19, in October 1975, on a lonely road on the edge of Exmoor, uh, as Norman Scott was walking his dog, a gunman jumped out of the bushes and in, in, in an attempt, we believe, or we're told, to shoot Scott, actually missed and shot Scott's dog dead, a great Dane called Rinker. What is that, it about poms when they shoot people? It's like Lord, Lord Lucan. You meant, they miss badly. Well, they meant to, he meant to get the wife and he got the nanny, is that right? right. <laughs> Absolutely hopeless. It wasn't that hard, I don't think. But anyway, this chap sort of ran off in horror. The whole thing was um, uncovered by uh, newspapers and the police. Uh, and, of course, in May 1976, Thorpe resigned as leader of the Liberal Party. And in 1979, the case went to the Old Bailey. Well, you can imagine what a great case that was. Wow. That was the year you and I started in newspapers. I don't remember it, the, the stories. But when I look back on it, um, which this book has prompted me to do, gosh, what a feeding frenzy it was for Fleet Street. So, um, unfortunately for the prosecution, it was a badly conceived and executed case and they hadn't done all their homework, but um, Thorpe's public relations, um, public public reputation was damaged enough and the trial um, was abandoned um, and Thorpe was let off and all of the other protagonists were let off uh, and found innocent. But, of course, that was the end of Jeremy Thorpe. He died in, 19, in 2014. Caro, this book just highlights the whole thing. As I said, it's got politics, ambition, lust, and, of course, Thorpe's calling in of favours from the old boy network and the British establishment. You would love it. But the absolute reason to read this book is read it before you see it on SBS. I think it is coming to SBS. It's a three-part BBC miniseries. I've been told that it's coming to SBS later in the year, but I'll, I'll have more on that as time draws near. Hugh Grant is playing... The, uh, the Jeremy Thorpe character, and Ben Wishaw is playing Norman Scott. You may remember him oh, as yep. um, he played Q in the James Bond films, and also he was, uh, he was in um, The Hours. The yes, hour, he was. Yeah, that's the right. The and hour. the voice of Paddington Bear to young folk. And it's being directed by Stephen Frears, who of course directed The Queen and High Fidelity. So we're in good hands with that one. So that'll be. I'll, I'll bring Potty's news of that later on. But the book itself, a very English scandal, uh, is available at all good bookshops. So from anatomy of a scandal, which we talked about earlier this year, to which was not true, to a very English scandal. Ben Wishaw was also in. Um, he played Sebastian in the most yes. recent remake of Bright, Brideshead. Revisited. That's right. Okay. I'll take that one on board. So what have you been watching on the screen? Oh, Jack Irish is back. Oh. Oh. He, that, is that, that, so that's why Guy Pearce has been doing all of these interviews. Doing a lot of Talking media. about 
marriage breakups and, and how much he loves his baby and yep, all he's that. He's been everywhere. Look, this is a great show. I thought the best um, comment in all those many plethora of media interviews was his um, comment that when his friends, who all love Peter Temple's books, heard he was playing Jack Irish and said, surely not. Surely that's Jack Thompson. You're far too young and pretty. Well, he, he plays him brilliantly. But uh, it opened, it started on Sunday night on Free to Air on the ABC. Um, had to um, wrestle with the old remote control with Clementine, who was is just engrossed in MasterChef, which we'll talk about next week, and all of that phenomenon. But I got her to turn. She loved it. This is so Melbourne, this show. And some of the sh- the shots, the shot in the pub, you know, the, the three old, well, now it's only two old Fitzroy supporters who still only watch reruns of Fitzroy games. And, of course, Jack's dad was a... Fitzroy player. But the theme this time is the exploitation of Asian students. And, oh, Corrie, it is it has set the scene. But the, the it reminds me to talk about a genre because it starts um, with the Marta Dusseldorf character. She's back and she and Jack have been living together and they're having an argument. Um, her biological clock is ticking and Jack's being his usual hopeless self and losing socks and stuff. He's such a wonderful, flawed hero, isn't he? He is. And she cracks it and leaves. And he and the young Asian student who has become his friend and who is also a courier, Jack wraps up a baby. He, he gets um, a friend who is a very good knitter to knit him a baby Fitzroy jumper. And he packages it up and says something in the letter, which all comes out in the first episode. You know, what the hell, let's give it a go or let's do it. Or it's just shocking what's what happening. happens to the baby jumper? Well, three years later, the show fast forwards um, after the first 10 minutes of the show. Three years later, um, a man finds it in the bushes of Ballarat, in the forest of Ballarat somewhere. And it's got Jack's address on it, so he gives it to him. And so Jack realizes that she never got. I mean, it's a. It's, oh, the letter that never arrives. You've got it. You've got to go with it because obviously, Jack, if you were really serious about having a baby with Marta, then you know, surely you would have you know sent her a text when she yeah, didn't did. You respond. Get, did you Did you receive or the little jumper? <laughs> She's now gone off to Manila, and that's the end of that for the moment. But it reminded me of um, that wonderful show, Last Tango in Halifax, which of course the couple gets together fifty years after he sent her a letter. And she didn't get it because it wasn't delivered. No, because the naughty friend the naughty, was jealous and didn't yeah, give it to her. And ended up marrying him yeah, instead. That's right. So, and the, obviously there's, you know, Doc Reed at Essendon who allegedly, well, he did write a letter to. <laughs> well, he did. That's, part, that's what started the whole Essendon scandal. He wrote a letter to the footy boss and also to the CEO and the chairman. Love the way this has come back to footy. Well, he wrote it to James Hurd as well. And James Heard claims he never got the letter. And one of the I'm... great songs, Take a Letter, Maria. Yes, yes. But I think. Haven't that... we danced to that a bit over she, the years? She did address it to my wife. <laughs> um, but then there was a great Betty Davis film called The Letter, where an incriminating letter, she's the lawyer who defends her for the murder of her husband, and they ended up falling in love and getting married. But then a letter arrives that makes it clear that Betty, old Bet, was more, up to a bit of was more involved than we thought. So that actual genre is something that is fascinating, but I highly recommend. And how Jack many Irish. parts is it, do you know? Oh, is it three oh, or four? A few weeks. Yeah, oh, 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 you, the, the, the month of July is I did, I did catch up on a couple of poll ducks on the weekend, and I did see the scene where he comes out of the water. Look, he, that actor, Aidan, has whatever his surname is, he has a great six-pack, no doubt about it, but my money's still on. Uh, Mr. No, Darcy. That oh, but oh, the last episode was so sad. But honestly, there's something about that Paul Duck. Even 
Coco said, oh, they're standing on yet another cliff with another windy day. Well, when he gets on that horse and rides over, do you think that's the same shot? They just Romeo again and again. Hey, Ross. Oh, it's just, it is, I don't care. It's absolutely brilliant. Now, I'm a bit disappointed with food today because you cooked a great beef stroganoff on the weekend. I did. I was lucky enough. To, it was absolutely beautiful and it's one of your, you've been cooking that for me since we were teenagers. Well, it, it, look, it's a different recipe, this one. This this new one was out of the beautiful winter cookbook, but uh, which has just come on sale the but, 70s um, dinner party girls who are listening and boys will be disappointed. But I just want to perfect it. I want to cook okay. it a couple more times. I All had right. a couple of reservations about it. It's very nice of you to say that. But what I have pulled out of the um, treasure chest, Caro, is my mum's old little cookbook here, which um, we will take a photo of. In fact, it's almost falling apart. The Aerofoss recipe book, um, which I reckon probably dates back, looking at the drawings, the late 50s, I think, and it's almost falling apart. But I make these, I haven't made these for a while, not since the kids were going to school. But the other day, um, there was a promise that Hattie, granddaughter Hattie, was coming to visit. And I thought, I'll whiz up some melting moments. Alas, she did not come. But everybody who was in the house that day ate these instead. They're mum's or Peg's melting moments. Now, this is all in ounces. And so I, this morning on the way to the podcast, I realized, oh, my Lord, we're now doing grams and things. So I've tried to sort of change it over. Just Google. So it's four ounces or 110 grams of butter, two ounces or 55 grams of icing sugar, one ounce or 28 grams of corn flour, four ounces of plain flour, half a teaspoon of vanilla essence and a pinch of salt. You cream the butter and the icing sugar. You add the essence you work in the sifted flour, corn flour and the salt and you roll the mixture into little balls. Place them on a greased oven tray. Press the balls with a fork and flatten. Cook in a moderate oven. It says 375 Fahrenheit here. I reckon that's 180 Celsius. And you cook until pale golden colour for 10 or 15 minutes. Well, that's a big secret with melting moments. And then Don't when, overcook them. And then when they're cold, I put in passion fruit icing which is just butter, icing, sugar, and um, passion, passion fruit. fruit. Now, Do you sift the pips out of the passion fruit? Absolutely strain? not. Absolutely not. I love them being nice and crunchy. Don't you love a crunch of a passion fruit pip? Yeah, I, I, I do. And Anna from the Op Shop sister, Julie, gave me a melting moment recipe with passion fruit icing when I got married, and I still make them. They are so, we might have a bake-off. Look, I reckon melting moment, this recipe is foolproof, Caro. I can't remember the first time I started cooking, but it was one of the first things I cooked with mum. I was probably 10 or 12. And her voice is ringing in my ears, don't overhandle the dough. Mm. And that is the big rule, of course, with any pastry cooking. Not that this is actually pastry, but just try and just just not overwork it. Don't don't keep rolling and rolling and rolling. Keep them more because your hands get moisture on them and it can really change the texture. And the other key is that with your dough mixture, as you would know, it can't be too wet, but it can't be too dry because it becomes crumbly. So it's got to be just right. And then the trick is to press it with the uh, with the fork that has been dipped in um, boiling water so it doesn't stick. So it's delicious. And you put two of them, uh, you know, put the icing in the middle, the two of them. Oh, well, honestly, they went off like, uh, you know, they're so beautiful. none on her wedding night. The problem with commercial melting moments is they're so big. And you, you know those, you go into yeah, those shops huge. and there's a big cookie jar full of these, I mean, they're the size of a, you know, disc. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. They've got to be little. They're, they're really small, just one mouthful. So that's yep. my that's my cooking tip today, Caro. Uh, now what else? Six quick questions. Let's get going. First, uh, can I be grumpy first? Yeah, oh, yeah, you can. I am horrified yet again that the worst acronym 
in my daily and weekly, <coughs> excuse me, and monthly life is the term WAGs. Wives and Girlfriends, it stands for, and it always relates to footy players in my life, but it also relates to cricketers. Soccer players. Well, yeah, I suppose they're footballers as well. Um, but uh, there's something about the word WAG, like the word spinster, that is a negative connotation. Um, the Herald Sun love WAGs. They're always talking about WAGs. No, I want to ban the term WAGs. Well, what if you're a WAG and you like the term? Well, you shouldn't. They've like hit Victoria the head- Beckham. They've hit the head. Well, I rest my case. They've hit the headlines again this week because there's a, a weird feud that's been going on for longer than most people realise between Cooper Cronk and Cameron Smith, former happy teammates at Melbourne Storm. Billy Slater's become involved. Of course, he's still at Storm with Cam Smith. Um, Cam Smith is angry that Cooper Cronk left, but now it emerges that there was a pre-season, oh, yet another pre-season camp. This time the WAGs and their children were invited and something went on between the WAGs of um, Smith and Cronk. And then there was a refusal to go to a wedding. Went on? What, well, the, a the, wives, or the wives fell out and they're now being blamed for this feud that oh. is very insidious and very disappointing. So I don't like the word WAG and um, I don't like it as an acronym and I want to stop it. There's something about, you know, wagging your tail or something. I just don't like it at all. Something about, you know. So, well, we won't be using it on this show then. or obedient. Now, six quick questions. You yes. kick it off. Um, Susie Quattro's touring in February, one of my old favourites. What's your favourite Susie song? 48 Crash, although as a, when she became a bit of a ballad. What about Devil Gate Drive? No, preferred 48 Crash, but I did love Stumbling In. Remember when she... Oh, no, that remember, was just all when she tried to go down the country in. and western path. <laughs> Stick to your knitting, Susie. I can't believe she's still going. Corrie, if you were Theresa May, how would you be handling Trump's visit to Britain this um, week? Exactly the way she is, Caro. <laughs> although she's got a few things on her mind with the resignation this week of um, Foreign Secretary, Secretary Boris Johnson and the day before her Brexit Secretary, David Davis. So I don't think Donald Trump's going to cause too much of a problem. The whole thing is they're getting him out of London, Caro, because they're terrified of all the protests. So Chequers, of course, the Prime Minister's country retreat is the ideal setting and the Queen's going to visit him at Windsor Castle. So he's got the dinner at Chequers, the Queen at Windsor Castle, the Trump baby blimp is going to fly across the skyline. Um, It has the full, um, uh, you know, yes, you can do this from the London Lord Mayor, which in itself is just going to be a bizarre thing. Um, so there you go. Why is the Queen meeting Donald Trump? I have no idea. But anyway, um, good luck to them all. Get him out of London. Quick sticks. Get him off to Russia, I say. Caro, will Carlton coach Brendan Bolton survive the year? It's not looking good. It's not looking, not good. looking good. Um, it, everyone's denying that there would be any movement this year on Brendan Bolton and that he's got two years to go. I'd be amazed if these losses continue, that there isn't some form of movement by the end of the year. And certainly I can't see him surviving beyond next year, particularly with um, the team that's running that club at the moment. They will lose patience. He seems like such a nice bloke. Yeah, I think um, his one-dimensional nature is starting to um, dismay a few people. What's been your most annoying, and we'll do more on this whole phenomenon because I've got some very strong views on it. What's been your most annoying MasterChef moment this season? Oh, Caro, last Sunday's episode where the contestants had to cook 450 canapes for an event that Prince Charles was attending in Darwin. Well, you know, the drama, the build-up, we were all so excited. Oh, God, talk about an overkill. And the motorcade pulls up and 
did I actually hear trumpets and choral singing a la Zadok <laughs> the priest? He's on the foreshore of Brighton, of Darwin, going to meet the Royal Doctor Flying Doctor Service, and they're playing Zadok the Priest-esque sort of music. Not the actual. It's soundtrack. sort of bizarre that he did it. And, in the but first he, but there's been a social media outcry because he didn't eat any of the canopies. I the, know. The, the, it's the, unbelievable, the, isn't it? The, what was sorry, he thinking? Should I say canopy? Canopies. <laughs> a canopy is something that you put over your head like an umbrella. Well, there are a few of those to keep the rain out too. Uh, but he did not try any of the contestants' food. He met them, which I thought was rather jolly, but did not try any of the food. And of course, as we know, cocktail parties, the royal family never eat. Caro. Would you strip for art? What a ridiculous question. You know the answer. Of course I wouldn't. <laughs> what a, who would want to paint me? And even if they did, I wouldn't do it. Corrie, who is your crush of the week, please? Well, there's a few of them in this one, Carol. It's the entire international diving team in Thailand that are rescuing, the cave divers that are rescuing these um, young soccer players and their coach. And in particular, the British cave experts, the two who have been with the boys um, on and off for the past few days, what a brave bunch of people. What a highly organised, well-orchestrated uh, rescue mission this has been. And, you know, God willing, they'll all be home safe and sound by the time Potty's listening to this podcast. I'm sure there'll be a lot more to come Do out about. you have a about. tip? I'm sure there's a lot more to come out in that story about what really went on behind the scenes. I do. It comes from Brendan, my husband. Now, Corrie, it's school holidays. It's winter. He's been doing a bit of driving and he has found the best meat pie, he claims, in Victoria. Ocean Grove. The bakery is called The Rolling Pin, The Rolling Pin Bakery in Ocean Grove. I'm happy with the name. Near the Coles car park, he reckons. Easy to find. $6.50. Okay, you're paying a bit more for premium fruit. He had a meat pie there the other day. He said it was, you and I have had the pasties at South Rosedale, halfway to Meetung and Bairnsdale. We've had the meat pies in Colac. But Cow, when, the Cow's Bakery used to do the best pie. Oh, and there's, there's that beautiful one at Malmesbury too that is just incredible. But Brendan says this meat pie at the Rolling Pin Bakery in Ocean Grove is where you have well, to get. Well, can you tell him next time he's down there to... Bring us a couple and we'll have a tasting <laughs> test with our melting moments. Um, what a lovely episode this has been. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us today. And if you have enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes because it makes us feel good, makes Caro feel really good, but it also helps other people find us. We love your emails, your Facebooks, your Instagram comments. Please keep in contact. We love the correspondence. Uh, Don't Shoot the Messenger is looking for a supporter or sponsor, so if you think you have a product or service that could be a good fit for our pod, please don't hesitate to contact the sales team here at Croc Media. They'd love to hear from you. And Caro, as we lunge further into a week of Britain imploding, Donald Trump's blimp exploding, and the whole world is just waiting with fingers crossed for these children to come out of the They have done well in the World Cup, the Brits. They have. They've They've got some positives happening there. What do we say at the end of this week, Carol? Don't shoot the messenger, Polly.